0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this, part two of our series on near-term human extinction, we continue our conversation with Dr. Guy R. McPherson, Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Professor McPherson is co-author with Carolyn Baker of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind. McPherson presents what appears to be overwhelming scientific evidence that our environment is headed for a swift apocalyptic collapse. I want you to know that these interviews on near-term human extinction are the most disturbing conversations I have had in the past 25 years as host and producer of Radio Curious. That said, imagine the human habitat in which we all live changing so rapidly that life as we know it is extinguished. Temperatures that are getting hotter than ever, decades-long droughts, Catastrophic fires, melting polar ice, rising sea level, and unprecedented winter storms are expected to radically limit food production and availability of potable water. In Part 1, Dr. McPherson discusses the rise of global temperature by more than 1 degree centigrade, the likelihood of a continued global warming trend in the future and some of its effects on our planet. I encourage you to listen to Part 1, which streams from RadioCurious.org. In this, our second visit with Professor McPherson, he explains how this small rise in global temperature is leading to a large-scale mass extinction on Earth. Recorded on September 14, 2015, while he was traveling in New York State, we began when I asked him what abrupt extinction will look like.
1: We've observed other species going extinct in the past, but we've never seen that for our own, obviously. In addition, it's difficult in this culture, in this this Western, civilized, industrial culture, it's difficult for us to even ponder the idea of our own death. We don't even think about that much less talk about it death, dying, grief, grieving these are topics that are purely off topic we're not really allowed to talk about those things in this sort of living arrangements And so what's it going to look like? well I suspect it will be much like we're seeing now but faster exacerbated so let me give an example In the 1940s, 1950s, and through the early 1960s, there were three science fiction writers, Ray Bradbury, Aldous Huxley, and George Orwell. And each one of them, at the end of their lives, they were asked, how did you manage to see the future so clearly? And every one of them gave the same answer in a different form. They each said, I was just describing what's going on now. And I see much the same thing with respect to climate change, particularly with respect to abrupt climate change. We're already seeing refugees. We're already seeing storms that have the power to level cities. We're already seeing fires beyond the human ability to manage or control. We're already seeing food and water shortages. I expect those to accelerate very, very rapidly in the very near future. And and it's difficult for, for us to deal with the exponential function, but that's what we're dealing with here. We're seeing uh you know, when, when somebody says, I'll, I'll give you $100 every day till the end of the year, or somebody says, I'll give you a penny one day, and I'll double it every day from then on, which will you take? Well, we have difficulty with the exponential function, so we'll take the $100 a day, thanks. Uh, that gets us quite a bit of money at the end of the year for not doing anything. But if you take the penny the first day, two pennies the next day, four pennies the next day, eight pennies the next day, 16 pennies the next day, 32 pennies the next day, you make millions at the end of the year that's the exponential function. We don't really have much experience with the exponential function on a daily basis. So, you know, we walk past the pond, we see a little algae, we go, oh, that's a little ball of algae, that's going to, going to make it difficult for the other organisms in the pond to survive, I should have somebody look into that in the next few days. And then the long weekend comes, you, you leave, you come back, it doubles, it doubles, it doubles again. By the time you come back three days later, half the pond has fallen, and one day after that, it's completely covered with algae.
0: What are the various means by which humans would die in the process of near-term human extinction?
1: We're human animals. We sometimes forget that we're animals. And like every other animal on the planet, we need fundamentally three things. We need clean air, we need potable water, and we need healthy food. And so let's break it down into those factors. If global average temperature rises to 2 degrees Celsius above baseline, what that means is the interior of large continents heats up at least twice that much so to 4c or higher and that's where all the grain is grown and grain is the basis for civilization the ability to store food is a distinguishing characteristic of civilization of every civilization and so if the global average temperature rises to two degrees Celsius above baseline that in and of itself would be sufficient to cause civilizations collapse.
0: When you talk about uh, this human extinction occurring to all of us in the near future, what do you see as the time frame?
1: Well, I don't even like putting time frames on it, but I will use um, some pieces of evidence uh, generated by other people. Um, For example, an El Nino is currently underway. It looks like it will be a super El Nino, at least on par with the 97-98 El Nino that released a tremendous amount of heat from the ocean and uh, provided for surface temperatures of 0.15 degrees Celsius uh, above where they were before the El Nino began. So let's take as a given that we're going to head 0.15 0.15 degrees Celsius. So also let's take it as, as a given that we're already well over one degree Celsius above baseline. So let's say we're at 1.2 conservatively with the El Nino emerging. Well, according to the the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth assessment and a little bit of work from the referee journal literature. Uh, notably a paper in Geophysical Research, sorry, the Journal of Geophysical Research Atmospheres that's from May 20th, 2013. We put those together, and we come up with a, a 3 degrees Celsius global average temperature rise if industrial civilization falls. Okay, so what's the, what's the most rapid warming we could experience in the near future is termination of the heat engine known as industrial civilization. Well, if that happens, we're going to see a, about a 3 degrees Celsius temperature rise according to some very conservative sources. And then tack on the 1.2 that we're, we're at as a result of the El Nino and the relatively slow increase in global average temperature since 1750, and we're over 4 degrees Celsius. As I indicated, that Oliver Tickel paper says that 4 degrees C.O. we can prepare for is extinction. So, so now we've reached the point in a very, very short period of time beyond which the planet is capable of supporting habitat for humans. What that means is the other organisms can't keep up, so we can't grow food. We can't depend upon native organisms for food. The proteins denature in the grasses and the trees, and so they all blow away in the next windstorm. There's, there are water shortages that are going on right now. Uh, Sao Paulo... Northern California, hundreds, thousands of people without water on a regular basis. Exacerbate that. Ratchet it up. Double it every day. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of suffering for our species that we've never seen before, well beyond what happens in war or the contemporary version of what we call war, conquest, when when we go and kill brown people with drones by the thousands. So that we can take our oil, which happens to be under their country, well beyond the kind of suffering we've, we've observed at any time in human history, well beyond the plagues of the past, well beyond massive starvation. We're talking about starvation, lack of water, deprivation for every single person on the planet, leading to starvation, suicide inability to ingest water, freezing to death, dying from heat strokes, all these things going on within the next few years, maybe a decade or two on the outside. It takes 50 years or so to decommission a single nuclear power facility if the money is available. I promise we don't have 50 years left of civilization, so those nuclear power plants are going to melt down catastrophically. So there goes the air. We will die because of lethal mutations resulting from breathing in ionizing radiation. And most immediately, people within this so-called 10-mile evacuation zone of nuclear power plants will die quite abruptly as a result of those meltdowns. Also, those lethal mutations resulting from ionizing radiation all over the globe will, of course, affect every other animal and plant on the planet as well. And so uh, I I don't know of any species that can persist beyond a handful of generations due to lethal mutations.
0: You speak with certainty, and there are people who contradict the science to which you refer. What are they saying? How do you respond to that?
1: Uh, Again, I'm just quoting other people's science. I left active service at the university six and a half years ago. I have not conducted primary science of my own since then. So I'm just quoting the science. And in response, I often am told that I'm cherry-picking the science um, which at some level is true, like everybody else, I uh, put together the evidence that leads to a certain case. And I happen to put together the worst-case set of scenarios for human existence. And and so as a consequence of my dire message, I'm subjected to the shoot-the-messenger sort of approach that we're all familiar with throughout history, That that surely I must be wrong because other people are not saying this. Uh, and, And, you know, I have a couple of responses to that. One, again, I'm just quoting other people's science, not my own, because I'm not doing primary science anymore. And secondly, I think more importantly, I'm a conservation biologist. Most climate scientists are not. Most climate scientists are focused on atmospheric chemistry, or they're physicists. So they don't quite understand that like other organisms Homo sapiens requires habitat to survive too just like all those other organisms out there in the world and without that habitat we will surely go extinct because that's what drives most species to extinction already is the lack of habitat for those species and what that means is clean air and potable water and the ability to access food and so on well, if we don't have those, we're in real trouble. And 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 the clean air could go as a result of ionizing radiation. It appears that Fukushima itself is an extinction-level event for humans, if played out sufficiently long. It, it appears that the lack of potable water will remove habitat for an enormous number of people. And the same for food. You put all those together, and it doesn't look good to me for the species known as the wise ape homo sapiens
0: sapiens You say in in your book Extinction Dialogues that um, the Obama administration abandoned climate change as a significant issue because it knew we were headed for extinction as early as 2009 Can you uh, share your thoughts on that with us?
1: Sure, a few, a few things come to mind First of all As as we now know, uh, the NSA has had access to every keystroke we type on any Microsoft product since at least the year 2000, probably earlier. So when Tim Garrett was writing his paper, pointing out that civilization is a heat engine and describing abrupt climate change, when the measurements of atmospheric methane went exponential in 2007, when Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere reached a point which locked in, which guaranteed 6 degrees Celsius temperature rise and 80-foot sea level rise in the not-so-distant future. When all those events were known, that was in 2007, maybe 2008 at the latest. So in 2009, the Obama administration, through the climate negotiations under the bus at COP15, the Conference of Parties, Um, the 15th version of the Conference of Parties to deal with climate change. And small wonder. It was game over by then. Uh, Most people, including me, didn't know we were in the midst of abrupt climate change. But the NSA has access to a lot more information than you and I do. And so the Obama administration certainly knew that because of myriad factors, not just one, not just an example here, an example there, not an anecdote, but a bunch of data that could be easily put together. They knew what what I now know, that we were in the early stages of abrupt climate change even then.
0: On a personal level, you became a certified grief recovery specialist in January of 2014, uh, certified by the Grief Recovery Institute. Uh, that and what we've been talking about for the past two programs is, uh, indicates uh, perhaps that uh, this brings a certain amount of terror to you personally. How do you deal with it?
1: Well, it did. And in fact, it, it brought a certain amount of terror, uncertainty, anxiety, anger, and so on, a bunch of what I would call adverse emotional responses. Up until I completed that episode with Grief Recovery Institute, up until that point, um, there were there were bad things going on in my head and i didn't I couldn't even begin to understand them because I didn't understand the concepts of grief and grieving. I hadn't fully grappled with the fact that all of us die, including myself. I was an inadequate griever because I didn't know what that meant. All of those are taboo topics in this culture so no big surprise that I hadn't fully embraced them and pondered them in my mind. But by completing the, the workshop with the Grief Recovery Institute, reading deeply and meditating, I did manage to get to the point that I could deal with my own grief in a far more healthy way than I was otherwise able to do, than I'd been previously able to do. Interestingly, I completely agree with Recovery Workshop because I thought it would help with my professional work because I was presenting particularly dire information about abrupt climate change, and I was the classic left-brain academic scientist who didn't have much of a heart in the way I presented the information. It was all data. It was just a facts, ma'am. And I present the facts and tell people that we're going to run out of habitat for our species in the very near future. you? i I got, to, I got another plane to catch. You know, I was the equivalent of the medical doctor who walks in the club with a clipboard and spends 15 or 20 seconds with the patient, never makes eye contact, says, you're going to die in six weeks, please pay on the way out, i got to go play golf. And so finally I came to realize what grief is and that there is, recovery from grief, just as there is recovery from other sorts of damage we inflict upon ourselves or that are inflicted upon us. And that made me much less angry and much more capable of living with and loving what is instead of wishing for a different outcome. And, and worse yet, another definition of grief wishing for a different past. The the past is behind us, and I was wishing for a different past in terms of what was going on in the world. And I don't do that anymore. So I think that's a pretty healthy outcome.
0: So maybe you just answered my next question, which is, is that working for you?
1: It certainly is working better than what I was doing before. Um, I would say yes, It is working for me. Um, I would say I'm far more emotionally healthy than I was even two years ago. And so that's been enormously helpful to me was completion of the workshop, um, interacting with like-minded people, having conversations that matter, and taking this message out to people and interacting with people Um, in a far more compassionate way than I was capable of doing in the not very distant past. So, personally, I have moved beyond Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, Um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I spend most of my time now in what, what I've termed the sixth stage of grief which is gallows humor. It's beyond acceptance. And it's viewing at this, it's looking at this culture and viewing it through the lens of absurdity, uh, sort of inspired by philosopher Albert Camus and his absurdist philosophy of the world. I'm, I'm beyond thinking that we can do anything as a society to change the near-term outcome I have instead adopted the view that we as individuals have an opportunity to live and to live with urgency like we've never had before. And so I'm attempting to pursue that on a daily basis. Do I fail? Of course, on a daily basis, in fact. But I keep I keep marching on as if the moment matters and trying to contribute to moments that actually matter.
0: Well, Professor Guy McPherson, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And uh, before we close, I usually ask several questions. And one of them is a eureka or an aha moment uh, that has really changed your life. Uh, you've told us much about, uh, obviously, the perhaps the most significant one. But... Is there something behind that? Is there another one? Is there something uh, perhaps in in your childhood that uh, puts you on the academic path uh, that has brought us to this conversation?
1: Yeah, that's an an interesting question, and it allows me to go back and and think about some signposts in my life. Um, When I was taking college classes in biology, I realized that every other species goes into overshoot, given enough substrate, and then they die off they either die off catastrophically so that only a small proportion of the population lives or they die off completely and that we are the species in the petri dish. It wasn't long after that that I decided that having children was a bad idea. And so my wife ultimately shared that sentiment and we didn't have children. It was, you know kind of contrary for our generation. So there were these signature events in my life, these various aha moments that, along with my background in conservation biology, fire ecology, and climate science, led me to this conclusion that, in 2002, in fact, that we were irreversibly headed for human extinction in the not-very-distant future. At the time, 2002, I grieved for months, not even recognizing it as grieving and the uh, the people around me didn't couldn't begin to understand what I was going through because it was beyond individual, it was it was conceptual, it was theoretical, the grief I was experiencing. It didn't have to do with my grandmother per se, or my great aunt or my close friend. It wasn't that personal. It was far larger than that. And 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 for me it was it was absolutely huge, as a conservation biologist. But for other people, it just seemed a little weird because it wasn't as if, you know, my best friend was in the hospital. It was just this, uh, this concept that we were going to, extinct to be extinct in the not very distant future.
0: Well, Guy McPherson, you've told us uh, several minutes ago of what you want to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life. Um, and I'd like to close by asking you if there's a book that you could recommend to our listeners.
1: There is, and at the expense of sounding like I'm a pitch man for myself, uh, there are a couple of books for people who really want to dig into the science and what it means for you as an individual. There's the the book that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, Extinction Dialogues, and the subtitle tells the whole story, how to live with death in mind, how to live with urgency, why to live with urgency. Because even if everything I've told you is wrong, even if, if humans are not going to go extinct for another million years, even if we're here for the long haul, then I would still argue that how we live today and living with urgency are among the most important things we can do. The other book I recommend is one that is just out, co written by Pauline Schneider, and it's written for young adults and preferably. Uh, for children to be read to by their parents so that they can all, all soak up the message. The The story is called Mid-Ladybug and Mr. Honeybee, a love story at the end of time. And it describes the horrors of industrial civilization and the lives that are taken as a result of industrial civilization uh, beyond human lives. And up to and including humans, of course. But from the perspective of organisms that we don't spend much time thinking about. So... Beyond those, I would recommend anything by Edward Abbey, the iconoclastic writer from Tucson, Arizona, who died on March 14, 1989, years ahead of his time, but had some amazing things to say before before he left this mortal coil.
0: Well, Professor Guy McPherson, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: You may hear part one of our conversations with Professor McPherson online at radiocurious.org. He is a professor emeritus of natural resources, ecology, and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona and co-author with Carolyn Baker of Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind, The books Dr. McPherson recommends are Ms. Ladybug and Mr. Honeybee, A Love Story at the End of Time by Pauline Panagiotou Schneider and Guy McPherson. He also recommends the books written by Edward Abbey. This program was recorded on September 14, 2015. Radio Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, UKIAH, California 95482. Christina Onested is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.